Support for this podcast is brought to you by Disney's Wish, now nominated for a Critics' Choice Award for Best Animated Feature and Best Original Song. Gizmodo calls Disney's Wish an animation triumph that illuminates a century of magical animated history and is a bold testament to everyone who makes movie magic through an inspiring fairy tale that speaks to artistry being the true legacy. Disney's Wish, awards eligible in all categories for your consideration. Welcome to IndieWire's Filmmaker Toolkit Podcast. I'm Jim Hemphill. I write about filmmaking craft for IndieWire. The Color Purple has already been a Pulitzer Prize-winning novel by Alice Walker, an Academy Award-nominated film by Steven Spielberg, and a Tony Award-winning Broadway show. But director Blitz Bazawole still found new areas to explore in his adaptation of the stage musical. On this episode, he talks about finding a visual language for the heroine Seeley's imagination, making the leap to big-budget filmmaking, and choreographing every scene of the movie like a musical, even when the characters are just talking. Talks about a lot of other things, too, in a wide-ranging conversation that I enjoyed almost as much as I enjoyed his terrific movie. Here it is. Well, I guess the obvious starting point is to ask you, what was your relationship to The Color Purple before you came to this movie in terms of Alice Walker's novel, Spielberg's movie, the Broadway show? Were they all things that you were familiar with? Were you a fan going into this? Absolutely. I mean, uh, Alice Walker's Pulitzer Prize winning book for me was one of the anchors um, in my college years. Um, I read it then and kind of it was like the first time I'd read you know, African-American literature that referenced specifically the continent of Africa and Nettie's exile there. And it felt, I was like a recent immigrant, you know, to the U.S., so it was a very direct thing for me. I felt it. Um, and then, you know, I so for me it was the book first. Then it was Spielberg's film. Um, and then uh, I never got to see the Broadway show, unfortunately, but when I got hired for this job, I got every clip um, they they could send me so that's my journey mm-hmm. well it seems to me like you know that's a lot of pressure to come on and be adapting Alice Walker's novel and again when it's already had multiple iterations that were very successful um, what was your initial response when you heard that they were remaking it and that you were in the running for it well I mean first I was like why are they remaking it I mean it's a it's a it's already brilliant in so many mediums and facets and I didn't I didn't understand why um but then you know you 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 take the meeting and you go okay I want to know what what you know where this can go but before I did I also read went back and read Alice Walker's book and I think that's when I was like oh there is a layer that it still lingers and that layer is Seeley's imaginative plane. And the opening lines of the book read, Dear God. And Dear God, for me, was like, wow, okay, you have to have imagination, you know what I mean, to be writing letters to God. You know, so immediately I went, okay, that's a way in. And if I can just continue to lean into this imaginative plane. Uh, but it also got very clear to me that, you know, often people who deal with trauma and abuse uh, miscategorized as docile and kind of waiting to be saved and I find that actually to be quite false in their headspace they are working actively to free themselves right we just don't have access to their headspace and so I felt that if I could give Seeley 
um, that imagination. And if, if I can bring the audience into her headspace, then we can give the audience a sense of her agency and the fact that she's not docile and just waiting. She's actually actively learning how to love, who to love, how to free herself. And over time, we'll have something uh, that will be ours. So that was it for me. It was Once I stumbled on that, I knew, okay, we'll actually be contributing to the canon. Well, that touches on a couple things I loved about the movie, one of which was the way that you put the audience in Seeley's headspace. And I was wondering, what were some of your ideas for how to do that visually? Like, what were some of the things you wanted to do, whether it be with the camera or the production design or the color or, or any, any of those elements to place the audience in Seeley's shoes? Well, first, um, I knew that, you know, to have a headspace will require um, a kind of a, a, a visual differentiator. So Dan Lawson and myself kind of talked a lot about, you know, we were in this um, we were in this warm southern light for most of our movie. And then we knew that, well, if we could go into a headspace and kind of lean more into the, the steel blues and the more the more slicker uh, photography will clearly create a differentiation between those two worlds. Um, but then there were also like clear like um, moments of extravagance and 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 you know ostentatiousness, right? So like the giant gramophone, you know, was was one example. And it's one of actually the first ideas that came to me when I was like, okay, I need a clear visual. That will tell everybody. So this is before like I, was, I could hire anyone. I could get a green light. I was like, I need something that is going to tell everybody the kind of movie we're going to make, and it's going to be big. It's going to be bold, and we're going to go there. So I went out and got a, a, a previs done of just the giant gramophone, and I knew that if that worked, and if, if everybody said yes to that. Well, then we could really go there. So there were opportunities to constantly um, segue into these larger-than-life moments, like when Seeley imagines a 50-piece orchestra on a stage, right? Those are things that only her mind's eye could see. And I knew that, you know, uh, through costuming, through uh, lighting, uh, through production design, we could really expand the vocabulary. And, and it's also uh, was always going to help us, again, oscillate between the real and unreal. You know, you mentioning costume design, production design, you know, I'm thinking about you working with all these heads of departments and, uh, you know, your first movie, The Burial of Kojo, I think was, you know, I, I, don't, I don't know what the budget was, but it was low. It was, <laughs> it was very, you know. Very low. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was, as I understand it, it was, you know, self-financed yep. and, you know, very limited resources. So here you're doing something with, again, you know, you mentioned Dan Lawson, you're, you're dealing with some of the best people in the business as your department heads. Um, what kinds of things did you carry over from the experience of your micro-budget movie that applied here? And then what were some of the pleasures and challenges of being able to work with a much bigger team? Yeah. Well, first, you know, the big lesson was that um, it's always going to be the same no matter what your budget level is. You have to show up prepared, right? And on The Burial of Kojo, which was a super micro-budget movie, um, because I had no resources, I had to spend all my time plotting every little moment. So I learned to storyboard quite efficiently on that film. And then I got here and I had too much money. So now it was like, oh, wait, now you can get wasteful and you can now do things. So now you have to go back to, you have to storyboard everything to stay on, right? So it, I think it all came back down to being prepared. And 
you know, I storyboarded over a thousand frames for this film. I also not only storyboarded it, I, I hired voice actors to, uh, to do all the, the dialogue. I edited the storyboards into a two hour movie. And my department had to tell you it was mandatory upon hire to sit through this two hour pencil sketch of the film. And I went on YouTube, I found sound effects. I mean, I it was a movie we would watch. And I found very quickly that people would laugh, they would cry, they would react. And I said, if this, these pencil sketches are eliciting this level of emotion, then with these masters of craft, Dan, Paul, Astaberry, I mean, Francine, Tanchuk, you know, the list goes on, we would be able to really create something special. Um, in terms of their own contributions, I mean, I really only use these storyboards as guardrails of sort, right? Because I never bring them on set. I never, like, the minute we watched them and we could kind of digest what the film was, I threw them away. Now it's like we know the world, we know the movie we're making, and so now we can all kind of play within the sandbox. And it was beautiful to see the camaraderie and, and, and teamwork around, you know, how will this piece of costume read in Dan's light? How will this piece of light work in Paul's, um, you know, world uh, he built? And it was great to see that level of collaboration. Something else I really, really liked about the movie is you know, sometimes you think of musicals and you have this idea that, you know, the movie just kind of stops for a musical number and then goes back to the movie. And, and in this movie, there's a really, really nice kind of flow to it where it just the whole movie feels musical, if that if that makes sense. I, I don't know. But I was wondering what your kind of philosophy was in terms of how to integrate the musical sequences with the, for lack of a better word, story. Well, it was it was very it was a primary um, challenge. Um, and I think that, as she said, I think most musicals are plagued by this, you know, balance. Like the music just comes out of the sky, right? And for us, and for me, I've been a musician for 10 years plus. You know, I've toured globally. I, I kind of understand how, how story and music kind of work together. So from day one, I, 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 I was very adamant that my entire team would think about how to, from a, a diegetic place, right, create cadencing around how your music was going to begin and how then it was going to balloon into this bigger world. Begins in our opening, our opening sequence with the horse's hoofs kind of building up a beat. Then the banjo comes in and then our girls clap and then before you know it, we're into this big lush score. I figured if we just kept doing that, you'll end up with a very natural way in which it's always cadence, like when the guys go up to, to put up some posters, right? You have that world where it's like the hammering now builds up a beat. The beat builds up into this moment. So you're never going, wait, where is the music coming from? You always have a source. And even when it wasn't that, there were also practical ways to do that. Like we talk giant gramophone. The music's coming from the giant, from the regular gramophone, right? So like when, when you push into this bigger world, the music lives now within the horn of the gramophone. So we treat the music to feel like you're within it now. But then I think more than anything, it was also about the movement. And this is where Fatima Robinson and Dan Lawson's collaborations were like in incredible. So 
often what happens is that, you know, you have these big musical numbers, right? Which, and the camera is freely just finding everything and it's very liberated. And then you get into dialogue and narrative work and then it's very restricted. It's like reverse shots. Everything is just very cut and dry. From day one, I told Fatima and Dan, I want a ballet between all moments, whether it's dialogue or musical. So Fatima's helping me in long dialogue scenes, you know, sometimes three, four pages to figure out how to move characters across the room. One great example is when Suge and Celia are in the bedroom talking, right? And she goes to the, the closet, gets a dress, comes back. It's like, it's a ballet and it's constantly moving the camera. It's constantly finding her. And I think that just continuing that made it so that every time we went from a musical number to a piece of dialogue, you were never just, you know, the camera was liberated. When we boom from when Alfonso is talking to Mister and our girls are up there, I mean that camera is just flying. Often that's reserved for a big musical mo moment, a move that radical, right? But we were just going. It's probably smart to just keep integrating these mo moments, so when we cut, it all feels like one piece. Well, and for the big musical numbers, you're dealing with actors. I'm sure there's a sort of wide variety of experience among these actors. But, you know, you've got people in this who have done all this stuff before. You've got some people who are newcomers, some people who are maybe great singers and dancers but haven't acted as much. How do you uh, create an environment to get the best out of all of them? And what kind of rehearsal process or things like that were, were going on? Oh, man, it's a great one. I mean, yes, we had probably one of the most, like, expansive gaps between, like, the OG OGs and, like, this is my first film. I've never been here before, right? And so it was quite extreme. I think first it began with casting the right people, spirits, you know, you know just, like, people with the right heart. Let's put it that way. Uh, people who are always willing to help each other and understood that this was going to be a collective uh, effort. And it started very early in the process during rehearsals. We rarely read lines, if we did at all. They were just like beautiful therapy sessions. You know, everybody just talked about their families, characters that they recognize in these stories, talked about their own lives, their own journeys. And it was beautiful to see the level of sharing. So there was deep vulnerability and there was deep like, you know, we all knew each other's kind of thresholds. So we were all able to help each other in ways that I really believe the director's first job is to cast right, you know, and that's that. That's the first and only job. Like once you get that right, the rest kind of takes care of itself. And I think that this movie is exemplar when it comes to just a beautiful group of very talented people who worked in harmony to make something special. And I think the environment um, that is created, the vulnerabilities that are uh, acceptable, and the basic help that each of them give each other. I mean, Coleman will, you know, show up for, you know, for, for Felicia, you know. Um, when Fantasia did I'm Here, Felicia and, and Hallie came to watch her. You know, I mean, there's, there was, it was that constantly, people showing up to support each other and I think that as a director I couldn't be luckier mm -hmm. and for the actors who are not as experienced uh, what kind of audition process do you have because you know it seems to me I know 
that some in, in in some ways, you know, auditioning and actually acting on set are two different skill sets. There are some people who are great at auditioning and maybe don't do it as well on set. And, by, and there are people who are great actors who claim they're terrible auditioners. So how do you deal with that? And how do you make sure that how do you recognize, I guess, in the audition process that somebody's going to be the right person? Uh, it's like that's an intangible. I mean, if I if I could tell you what it is, <laughs> I mean, I mean, I'll be making a lot of money. You know, I mean, just it's it's a gut. It's a gut feeling, right? You see someone and you go, I think that's it, you know? And I don't know what you recognize. I don't know what it is. I mean, and also remember, these are leaps of faith, right? I mean, you never really know, do you? You just, it's a big gamble. And I think that for me, I always just trust that I know when I, when I see it. And with all everybody who auditioned, or even the people that I went out and were like, I think that's you. It's it's all the same thing, you know. But I think one spirit that is uh, quite um, an equalizer amongst everyone are just people who know how to work in harmony with others. I think that's like, I don't care what your chops are. I don't care what your talent is. I, it doesn't matter to me. Because ultimately it's going to come down to 2 a.m. with like, you know, an hour left on the clock to get the shot, you know, or the sun going down, and and you, and and you're gonna you're gonna be counting on human spirit and camaraderie to do it. So I'm very much about, you know, I know it's a bit esoteric, but like I I'm really just about being able to spot the right spirit, and that comes out of like people who are really selfless, and I just you know, filmmaking process is a team sport, and. You just have to know and be able to recognize people who are who perform well in a team setting. And for me, that's it. Um, something you said about Celie and the way you wanted to present her trauma in terms of her not being docile, that kind of reminded me of another thing that I really liked about the movie, which is that it doesn't shy away from the darker aspects of the material, but it's also very exuberant. Like, I felt good walking out of this movie. You know, the whole time, it's very entertaining. It's very exuberant. And it's also got this great, you, you really f- well calibrated balance between the set, sort of naturalistic aspects and the kind of magical realism. And, and I'm curious how tricky it is navigating that tone between all of that and how much of it is maybe has to be finessed in the editing room. Oh, man. <laughs> it is, it, it's a challenge. You know, it's a big challenge. I mean, first of all, let's take everything into perspective. This movie is a sprawling 40-year traverse. It's insane how much material, right? Um, that's like you have to, and how many worlds you have to visit, you know? Um, and I found myself constantly asking, myself, like, what's important? You know what I mean? And, and how can I very efficiently tell the important pieces of the story? Yes, the trauma is critical. Yes, the, 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 the abuse is critical, but I also know that no person ever uh, lives in trauma and pain exclusively. We're all constantly oscillating between joy and pain as human beings. So for me, that was like the job, was just to figure out, okay, I'm a human, all right, what are my oscillations? When am I sad and depressed? When am I excited and happy? And then figuring out how to continuously bounce between those two, which I think gives this version of The Color Purple um, just a, a, a latitude that other versions may not have had. Um, the, the other thing for me was 
constantly being aware that, you know, these magical realist elements or so-called magical realist elements are going to have to be grounded in the realism of it all. So they always have to have a kind of a, an access point, um, a, ch a channel through which the audience can clearly see we're going there and can clearly find their way back. So that was very important for me. So whether it was a giant gramophone, whether it's the movie theater, everything had to have an in or an out. And what I tried to do as best as I could was use novel technology to do that. So a photograph at the time in 1910 was novel technology. I mean, not everybody had a photo. And I tried to make sure that every time Seeley would engage with a novel piece of technology or invention, her mind will sprawl. And I think that from the photograph, the, a gramophone which she had never seen before, it might as well be a magical contraption to her hearing music come out of a box. A movie. She'd never seen a movie. She didn't know what that is. So I also remember myself as a kid and how I would, my mind would just kind of travel when I would like encounter a piece of newness, anything that was new, I would just lose myself in that world. A movie, I, when I first seen a movie, I was like, my God, what is that? On a, on a, on a big screen, it's like, it's a world. And so your mind just kind of goes there and it stays with you. You imagine things that weren't even in the movie. You start to make up things. So anyway, I felt like once I could build a world of um, newness for Seeley, even when the letters arrive, you know, that's a new, yeah, that's a new world for her, her sister writing her from Africa. That's a new thing. So now her mind could travel and her mind could, could process Africa as, as, a, as a thing. So I was always looking for grounded entry points so that the audience would never feel like, oh my goodness, where am I and why am I here, right? And um, I think that really paid off. Uh, the last thing I wanted to ask you about is the sound design, um, because I saw the movie in a Dolby Atmos theater, and it was extremely immersive, the uh, sound design. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about um, just kind of how you arrived at the, the sound mix for the movie and what the challenges were there. Oh, man, the incredible Paul Massey and uh, Julian, who 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 did our, our sound effects. Um, well, I mean... For a film like this, immersion is everything, right? It's, it's you have to, you you cannot believe any of it if we're not intentional about the sonic world, right? And also because we have so much music that covers so much of like the tapestry, like it was even more important that like even within the music we could introduce elements of um, of sound design, right? And the sound design team became incredibly important in how we would cadence out. So like Julian's work on like hammering and like nails and stuff like that could easily now help us uh, transition. But I'll tell you another thing that's a little bit like hidden is like a low tone bass note. <laughs> you know, and this is like, you have to watch the movie. I hope I'm not spoiling it for anyone, but you got to really pay attention to this piece because it ended up being such a critical piece. Every time Seeley was about to go there, it was this like low tone rumble. I was just hit. It felt like a heartbeat almost, like a doo-doom, doo-doom, doo-doom. We had kind of built it in there as like this thing. And it's subconscious. Like, it, you know, I'm, most people watch it, never really even go, oh. But what it did was it's kind of Pavlovian, right? So now yeah, it's like now you're going, 
oh, something's about to happen. And I hear that bell, like something's about to happen. And I think that that was like the special thing in working with these brilliant sound designers to put less overt elements, like more covert elements that you could kind of just kind of feel and not even necessarily hear or pay attention to, but were always helping us make these transitions in and out of imagination. Cool. Well, it's uh, it's a really great movie, and I really appreciate you coming and taking the time to talk with me about Thanks, it. Thanks, so Jim. Thanks for being here, Blitz. Big pleasure. Thanks so much.